Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for the morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. If you are fortunate to live under the pressure of the gospel, sooner or later your life will be reduced to a showdown with the scriptural God. You will have the opportunity to be embarrassed, admit your failure, lose face, and look foolish in front of the person who preached the word of God to you. The problem is that you, like your teacher, along with everyone else, are no different than King Herod, his Hasmonean predecessors, or the cowards who worshipped them. You are terrified of losing control. Better to hold on and defend yourself. Everything is fine. You are in the right. You are justified. It is you who are the victim. It is others who should be held to account. I'm the boss of me, right? What's playing on Disney tonight? I just described the primary mechanism of the point of no return for every potential disciple. Each must face such a moment if we are serious about hearing scripture. Not once, not twice, but over and over again. The first time, however, is the most critical. It is a kind of make-it-or-break-it opportunity along the lines of the parable of the sower. Why? Because cowardice and self-righteousness are evil twins. You fear the pain of the Bible's piercing critique, so you choose the comfort and self-assuredness of being in the right and build massive defenses. Some people, actually a ton of people, unfortunately, build entire religions. They imagine that these religions are, quote, Bible-based, when in truth, they are Bible reactions. How else could you look forward to the cataclysmic judgment and doom of the scriptural kingdom as though it were an upcoming trip to a members-only version of Disneyland. Thankfully, from generation to generation, the Lucan genealogy tells a different story, one that does not bode well for Herod, the Hasmoneans, and all those who are like them, everyone who trusts in them. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verse 26. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 480 of the Bible as Literature podcast. There is a link between self-righteousness and fear. The more of a coward you are, the more self-righteous you are. 
one need only go on YouTube, which unfortunately I've had occasion to do recently, and watch the Christian rock concerts where they talk about how happy they are that Jesus is coming and how wonderful it is and how lovely Jesus is and how great it will be that the king is coming. It'll be so wonderful because this time he'll be coming as king of kings. He's our buddy, Rich. He's going to comfort us and console us and save us and take care of us and coddle us and smash everybody else. Why? Because we are cowards. We are so terrified of facing our own ugliness. We are so terrified of taking accountability for Scripture's critique of us that we reinvent Scripture in our own image, which is fashioned in the image of our cowardice, so that our ego is carefully coddled, protected, and shielded. And part of that mastery of our own self-care is to build up this fortress of self-righteousness that allows us to condemn everyone else. It's a defense mechanism because we are terrified. And in the story of Scripture, that's why we want to elect a king to smash everyone else on our behalf. It is one of the most horrifying byproducts of the rejection of Scripture. And that's why, as Paul says in Romans, and I keep saying this over and over again, God is mocked among the nations because of those of us who claim to be his children. It's grotesque. American Christianity is grotesque because of this mechanism, Rich. Yeah, you know, one of the things I was just having a conversation with my daughter today as a college student, and she was talking about this dilemma that she's in because she's like, you know, look, people who are really good at school are really good at continuing to be good at school. People who are good at doing well in school are good at perpetuating the system. At some point, you have to say the system doesn't work and you have to do work in order to push the system in the direction you want it to go. Now, she's just saying this as someone who understands some of the basics of the Bible. She's no scholar of the Bible. She's not a reader of the Bible. She's not even a listener of the Bible's literature podcast, which is fine. But it's interesting because what happens is that people get good at being successful in a certain area. And then once they do that, they become invested in keeping that system going so that they can continue to be good. Their ego starts to get invested in this system. That's what we've seen with this genealogy, as we've seen generation after generation after generation of people who are invested in the system. And of course, if you're doing well and everyone around you is doing just fine, then you say, God's going to come and perpetuate things to go the way things are going because we're doing just fine and God's on our side. The trick is to say that when there are problems, I'm part of the problem. And if I'm part of the problem and God's coming to set things right, maybe God's not on my side. And that is the very 
simple critique of those who are excited about Jesus coming back. What if Jesus is not on your side? Oh, well, Jesus is on the side of the Christians. Okay, maybe what you're understanding as Christian is not what Scripture is considering Christian. Well, God's on the side of his children. Well, are you his child, according to Scripture? Once you start poking holes in this, but you don't poke the holes in it, you allow Scripture to poke holes in this, it starts to poke holes in the human ego. So we can have the human system of one dynasty that then is replaced by another dynasty, which is replaced by another dynasty, and each one of those dynasties is filled with one generation of king after another generation of king after another generation of king, keeping this human system in place that allows the human ego to rule. Or you can have a great intervention, which Scripture describes, where God says, this is my son, not the guy that the Romans decided was my son. I just want to say this as clearly as possible in the way that I want to say things, Richard. The happy fantasy of self-delusional American Christianity is dystopian. Dystopian to such a degree that I would like to go on the record and say that it is to blame for all of the violence and corruption in contemporary American society. Why is it to blame? I'm blaming the Christians for what's happening to our society. Because anyone with half a brain who is subjected to that dystopian, self-delusional fantasy of Jesus loves me, yes, I know. No, the Bible does not tell you so. Anyone subjected to that with half a brain to people who are actively convincing themselves of a delusion because they can't face the pain of the truth of the gospel, which is the truth of the human condition, would have to react and fight against it if they're half-conscious. And when one observes the militancy with which the self-righteous are hell-bent on defending the delusion in order to protect themselves from facing the pain of the truth of the gospel, it becomes clear why people are lashing out. The only hope is the judgment of the prophets. The only hope is the destruction the Bible heralds. Because those who are afraid, who lack the courage to say, I am the Pharisee. I submit. I am the one who pierced Jesus. I am the one who should be concerned about his return. Those who lack the courage to say that, those who cannot say, I am wrong, I am judged. The white American who cannot say, yes, I am responsible for slavery. It doesn't matter what my ancestors did just by virtue of the fact that I'm not black, just by virtue of the fact that my neighbor is suffering. I'll just take responsibility without worrying about what I did. Because that's what Jesus did, who was innocent. 
If you can't do that, you are not hearing scripture. It's not about who did what. It's about the judgment of the commandment, which blames you and nobody else. As Father Paul has said numerous times, God is merciful to everyone but you. When you hear scripture, you are the one who is under judgment. I think we've hammered that point more than any other point on this podcast over the years, Richard. It's literature. Of course, that's not empirically true, but it makes a ton of sense for your sake and for your neighbor's sake to approach life this way. That's how the teaching works. But Israel is stubborn. I'm not talking about the state of Israel. I'm talking about the literary Israel. The sons and daughters of Israel are stubborn, which means you, O oh listener, even if you're a Muslim listening to this podcast, we are stubborn. We don't want to hear that we are the problem. And so therefore, we keep electing a king, and that's the difficulty of the cyclical nature of the Lucan genealogy. And we were chatting, Richard. It's interesting that unlike Matthew, Luke waits until after we have to suffer the misery of the vanity and stupidity of Herod's idiocy before the baptism of Jesus, before hearing of the genealogy. Why? Because in a way, it sets up a choice between two kinds of kings. So as we're going through this cyclical pattern of hope and failure, hope and failure, because human beings always fail from generation to generation, you're constantly thinking, what is the choice that we are being challenged with in each generation? The choice is, do you follow the commandment of God or do you follow after your cowardice, which leads you to elect a president or a king to protect you from whatever it is you're afraid of? Now, last week, Rich, we noted that there was not just a diptych of names, but with respect to this root, which means gift, in the form of Mattathias, the founder of the Hasmonean dynasty, it came up over and over again. And then we were chatting about the interesting connection between Mattathias and Herod. So for people who don't know the biblical and historical chronology, we have Mattathias, who's the founder of the Maccabean family and therefore the Hasmonean dynasty. Once you have the Maccabean revolt, then you have several generations of the Hasmonean dynasty. Eventually, they become too troublesome for the Romans, so they end the dynasty by installing their guy in place. He's the son of Antipater, who was a faithful Edomian, which means he's from Edom, and they place his son on the throne, and his name is Herod. I don't need to go into Herod. We've talked plenty about Herod. Read your Bible. You'll find out what Scripture thinks of Herod. 
Okay, he builds lots of things, causes lots of trouble, and doesn't give a whit about God. Okay, that's the summary of Herod. So as we have this genealogy, one thing that's funny in Luke is this name Matthias or variations of it, Mathat or something like that, comes up multiple times. And we're going to come up to the third one now, but it's not even the last one we're going to come to in this genealogy. It keeps coming up. Why does this name keep coming up? Well, you say, well, you know, the name just came up a lot of times. Well, it doesn't come up that many times in Matthew. Matthew 1 and 2, you don't have the name. Interesting. Second, there are many more generations in the Lucan genealogy than in the Matthew genealogy between certain set points. So how is it the fact that Luke has an extra six generations or four generations in the same amount of time? It's very strange. There's a lot more work that needs to be done on separating and understanding the dynamics of these two generations, because like we said at the very beginning, Luke could have just copied, would have made everybody's life easier, but he absolutely did not. So our life is not supposed to be easy right now. That's okay. So we have this genealogy that goes up to a certain point through the Hasmoneans. The Romans say no more, and they install their guy, Herod. He's our man. Luke offers a different option. The genealogy of the same Mattathias over and over again, Mattathias over and over again. And God ends it, makes Mary pregnant, and then says, this is my only begotten son. So this sets up Jesus and Herod as oppositions to each other. Okay, you want to end the Hasmonean dynasty, do you? Okay, I'll give you two options of how that's going to end up. Number one is Herod. Number two is Jesus. It's a two-party system. Unfortunately, there is zero votes for Jesus, <laughs> and all the votes are for Herod, because no one's going to vote for Jesus. It doesn't make any sense. Herod does exactly what every other king is going to do. Oh, Herod's so terrible. Is he so much more terrible than Mattathias? No. Is he more terrible than Melchi or a million of these other names? No, 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 and no. It's the same thing again with a different name. Jesus is the salvation from the tyranny of dynasties, all of them. I mean, anyone who's looked at Egyptian history, you're going to get a headache. Because you're like, wait, is this the 17th dynasty, or is this the 18th dynasty, or, or maybe it's the 7th dynasty? Thousands of years of dynasties, and you got to keep them straight. And the only way to keep them straight is by number. I mean, it's the same thing over and over again. You can make it fancy. You can put it in Roman numerals. But it's just the same thing. Only in Luke, not in Matthew, only in Luke is this break made in this way where we have Jesus declared the son going into the genealogy of one generation after the next. You want to end the Hasmoneans? Fine. You can have Herod. Great. This is the improvement. This is the best thinking that human beings can come up with. This is fascinating, and it only works. You can only hear the genealogy if you understand two things, Rich. One, functionality with respect to the consonantal roots and the elimination of this idea of who is the individual character as a person. 
Because if you're stuck on, well, this was this Mattathias and this was this Mathot and this was this and this was that person and they're different people, you'll never get the connection. But once you understand you're dealing with the same functional term and therefore the same functional character, you can then be set free to realize that this root gift is the same as the word ephthes in the Gospel of Mark. It's a repetition. It's not a diptych or a triptych with respect to the word gift. It's a repeated and insisted upon term in the genealogy. Luke is, as it were, stuffing the ballot box for the Hasmoneans in the genealogy. It's beautiful. Which brings me to the second point. You can't start talking about why he's using Matathias at the beginning of the genealogy until you hear the whole genealogy because the term has an itinerary in the story. It's actually quite impressive. The heartbeat of this word, this term gift throughout the genealogy is pejorative and desperate. The way that human beings spurn the gift of God from generation to generation is pejorative. As the Lord tells the prophet, it's not you they are rejecting as king, it is me. There is no king in the Hasmonean dynasty if he makes himself a king that is acceptable in the sight of the Lord. The reason Jesus is acceptable in the sight of his father is because he's canceled. He doesn't flex his muscles. Because the commandment rules when Jesus sits on the throne of the cross and is pounded into the dust. Which brings me back to the beginning of the episode. The only way you can preach with authority is if you're wrong. And the people putting videos on YouTube talking about how happy they are that Jesus loves them are right! That's how they function, which is why they're the Antichrist. It's dystopian. It's like watching a sci-fi film. They're all talking about how much Jesus loves them. They're going to be shocked in the kingdom. Have they read Ezekiel? I don't think so. Even in English, you can't get through Ezekiel and talk that way. How about Deuteronomy? Oh, wait, wait, wait. We created a theology that erases Deuteronomy. The son of Moth, which means terror. The son of Matathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Yosek, the son of Yoda. Last week we didn't read the verse because we jumped right into the names, Rich. I just wanted to make sure to spit the verse out as we continue to talk. But I love this word Moth because it could mean terror or it could mean small. It implies a choice. You can choose Herod, or you can choose the Apostle Paul, whose proclamation, whose teaching, whose gospel, the content of whose gospel is our Lord Jesus Christ, who carries the books of Moses to the nations. It's right there in front of us. Do you want the law? as your king? Or do you want to go back to the Romans and to Herod and to the Hasmoneans and continue 
with Justinian, who topped the Temple of Solomon when he murdered 30,000 people to build Hagia Sophia. I mean, come on. When does it end? It doesn't end. That's the point. That's why every generation, you have to pound scripture into each other so that you stop worshiping Justinian and his ilk and just submit to the commandment, which begins with confessing that we, you and I, are the bad news. You and I are the bad news. We are the problem. I dare any pastor, teacher, priest of any church or denomination to have the courage to say, we are the abusers. We are the problem. We are the ones who have done nothing good upon the earth. Basil the Great said it, but none of us say it. And even when we stumble across it in Basil's liturgy, we sugarcoat it and theologize it. But Basil is correct. We have done nothing good upon the earth, and we still have done nothing good, no matter what our websites say. The verse shows that there is nothing good that's done on the earth. If we go backwards and we look at Yoda, which is ambiguous, it can either mean the one who praises from the root yada. It's also related to the modern Hebrew word toda, which is thank you. That could also be praise. Or it could come from Yehuda, the word for Judah. It's not a normal way that you would spell Judah. It's probably the praiser because it's spelled with an omega instead of an omicron epsilon. I was hoping it was Yoda, Richard, but <laughs> you know, one can only hope for so long before scripture dashes your hopes. That Yoda isn't a good praiser anyway. So, but he, and, and anyway, look what he produced. He produced Luke Skywalker, who like kind of fell apart in the end anyway. So, and Obi-Wan Kenobi didn't do apart. great either. <laughs> Luke didn't fall apart. This confused society destroyed Luke, but let's not go there. <laughs> so, uh, then after you have that, you have Yosih, which looks very similar to the name Joseph, except it ends with a huh instead of a fa, which could be a mistake. So I'm going to go with Yosef, which means the one who continues, Joseph, like we've seen multiple times. So that's another kind of theme that we see, the continuer, the Joseph. So that happens again and again. So we have the one who praises, we have the continuation, then the semiin, which is my report or my hearing, the thing that you hear, what God is trying to teach. And so you have the one who praises and you have my teaching and the one who continues. Then you have the gift again, Matathew, the gift of Yahweh. And then you end with, as you said, Father, Ma'ath. Now, one of the things that's really tough, and I don't know what it would have been like for the ancient Jewish Greek speakers, because Ma'ath is ambiguous. In Hebrew, you have sounds like ha and uh, which you can't transcribe into Greek. And so sometimes they just skip them. So you can't tell. The other thing is you have sounds that are very similar, like a tet and a taf. You miss those as well. So as a result, this name Ma'ath could be interpreted multiple ways. But like you said, Father, it can either come from hatat, which means to terrorize. So mahat is the one who terrorizes, the terror. Or it can come from ma'at, which is an ein, which means small or a little bit. So you start off with praise. You continue on through the report, through the teaching once you go through the gift of God, then it becomes small. It becomes a terror. This teaching of God is something that is much bigger and much more freeing 
than the human tyrannies that we keep going after time and time again. It's like what I mentioned at the beginning. Those who become good at the system perpetuate the system. And who are the ones who benefit most from the system? It's the kings, and they continue it on. Rather than function as a gift of God to the people, they function as gifts of God to themselves and to their own children and to their own clan. They're not looking towards the people whom they are entrusted with, the flock who was entrusted to them. They might begin with praise like Solomon did, asking for the wisdom like Solomon did, but they end up enslaving people so they can build their temple. And as you said, for thousands of years, you know, we saw the same thing that Justinian did. We see the same thing about how, you know, we want to build a democracy. Okay. And it's going to take how many dead Iraqis to build democracy? We end up enslaving people overseas, or we end up enslaving poor people in the United States and cities and in the countries in order to build up this democracy in the world. We want to build up whatever it is. Whether it's democracy in the world or Solomon's temple, it's on the backs of the people you were supposed to protect. That's what keeps repeating over and over. That is the smallness of the terror. It's the smallness of the people that commit this terror, the smallness of the egos that create this terror. And when I say smallness, I'm not saying they're not big egos. What I'm saying is they're small-minded and they're narrow-minded, only thinking about themselves. Look, if you're hearing this and thinking, yeah, we've got to reform the system, or we can make incremental changes to the system, or we can make a better system, or we should burn it all down and start over, you're not hearing Scripture. Scripture is not about reform. It's not about improvement. Scripture is about helping people find a way to live under the oppression of whatever tyranny they find themselves. Because the system, insofar as it's made by the hand of man, will always be corrupt. There will be good situations, better situations, worse situations. As a disciple of Scripture, you must do the best you can to make life livable and better for the people around you, but not as one whose reference is the system. This language of secular religion about the moral arc of the universe, bending towards justice, everyone loves to talk that way, is not the language of Scripture. In Scripture, everything is heading towards the judgment, period. Everything is put under the feet of Jesus Christ. No one talks that way, because when you say that everything is moving towards some progress and some justice, you make yourself a hero. That's not the language of Scripture. We're not heroes. In Scripture, we are the problem, and we must submit to the commandment because the Lord is coming. And as individuals under judgment, we are accountable because we have pierced the Lord's Messiah to treat each person according to his law in fear and trembling. And his judgment of us, now in our current situation, is meant to set us free from this tyranny through our slavery to his commandment. Nobody wants this, because if that's correct, you can't do whatever you want. But that's scripture. 
You can accept it or reject it. But it has nothing to do with the secular social justice fix the system language of the modern secular state religion. I wanted to say that clearly, Rich, because I'm almost certain people confuse the two. In scripture, you're the bad guy. In social justice, secular state religion parlance, you're the hero. In scripture, there are no heroes. There are only bad guys, unfortunately for us. But I say fortunately, because when I become the hero, I become a bigger monster. The Hasmoneans started off good. They were able to cast off the yoke of the oppressor, and they became corrupt, and they degenerated, and the solution was Herod. This is how we're able to come up with solutions. Hannah Arendt in The Origins of Totalitarianism says, the language of the mob was only the language of public opinion cleansed of hypocrisy and restraint. When Herod is doing his thing in his gaudy building campaigns, in his violent campaigns, he was only expressing honestly and without restraint the language of the human ego. Amen. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.